Hey there, welcome to episode 56 of the Gig Life Podcast. I'm your host Stevie Taylor, welcome to the show, glad you're here. Um, hope you're well, I'm doing good, here's the formalities. Now, if you listen to this podcast on the Apple Podcast app, I was wondering if you could do me a favour. Now at the bottom of that app, or whatever page that you're on, on the app, there's a ratings and reviews section where there's a whole bunch of stars, five stars, from one to five stars, um, and a little write a review section. Now, I was wondering if you could maybe click some of those stars, let me know, or not let me know, but let Apple know what you think about this podcast. Um, and if you like to write something, yeah, sure, write a review, that'd be great. What it does is it makes us a little bit more visible in podcast world. Um, wouldn't say it moves us up charts or rankings or whatever, but just, yeah, I, I think the more sort of ratings and stars that you got, you kind of tend to pop up um, more in search engines and that kind of stuff. So if you don't, that's cool. Um, I love you regardless and um, I appreciate you being here. So anyway, on with the show. guest today is New Zealand drummer and educator Lance Phillip. Lance started his formal drum education at the age of seven with Ken Oxford and then with Bud Jones and he later studied with the great Roger Sellers and Frank Gibson Jr. He's played in the New Zealand National Youth Orchestra, he subbed in for the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra, he plays in the Roger Fox Band, he studied at the Grove School of Music in LA, he spent five years in the house band for the New Zealand version of Dancing with the Stars. He's played in musicals such as Les Mis, Grease, 42nd Street, Mamma Mia and Evita and has been a music teacher at the combined Wellington Polytech, Massey Uni, uh, New, New Zealand School of Music and Victoria Universities since 1993. Lance has gone on to teach some incredible New Zealand drummers including Darren Mathiason of Shapeshifter, Julian Dine of Lady Six, Jimmy Mack of Lord, Matt Beechin of Drax Project and Johnny Wilson of Good Time Music, and that's just to name a few. I met Lance in 1992. He used to come to my school in Masterton, New Zealand, and teach me once a week. He was my first actual drum set teacher, um, as I'd previously been taught by the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra percussionist, Norman Gadd, who never, ever let me leave the snare drum. It was rudiments all day. Um, so it was a real trip for me to be hanging out with Lance again, and hearing what he's been up to and also talk about my memories of, of his lessons and, and that time for me and what I've taken away from his teachings and in which I still use today. So a true New Zealand drumming legend, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for Lance Phillip. Cheers. I think we're rolling. Lance Phillip, 
welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. Yeah, thanks, Stevie. Awesome to be here. Yeah, man. Um, so, listeners, um, Lance Phillip is a, a drummer and drum educator from New Zealand. Now, when I was um, at college in Masterton, New Zealand, um, Lance used to come over the hill from Wellington or back from Hastings or wherever you were on your on your commute um, once a w- once a week driving Hastings, yeah. You know, commuting back um, and calling to the school, and he'd uh, give me a drum lesson once a week, um, and they were real, really formative years for me. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll never never forget those experiences and and the stuff that you taught me. And I, I think. As we sort of go on today, I'll probably expand a little bit more specifically on the stuff once we get to that part. But um, but it's bloody great to talk to you, man. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. when I see when I yeah, see your name, yeah, when I saw your name sort of pop up on a on a Facebook thing, I'm like, oh man, because I, I years and years ago I remember trying to find you, um, on Facebook yeah. or something oh, like wow. that, and yeah. um, yeah, I, I just I couldn't find you, and then I interviewed Darren Mathison. Um, in Sydney when right, Shapeshifters yeah, were here last year and we were sitting down and we were talking and um, he was telling me about his his education and um, and he said he was under the, the tutelage of uh, Lance Phillip and I went, oh, what, really? I said, same with me, you know, he was my teacher <laughs> yeah. too so we kind of chatted a little bit about that and um, and then, of course, yeah. since, since then I've, um, I've spoken to Kerry Buchanan um, a couple of yeah. times and um, he's also mentioned you, so... It's really cool to be to be yeah. sitting here talking to you now, man. It's a real real trip, real spin out for me. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. <laughs> um, yeah, that's great. all right, man. So you're you're on a bit of a break from teaching at the moment. That's how we kind of found some time to do this. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, it's a mid semester break yep. at uh, Victoria University, New, Ze- New Zealand School of Music, where I'm full time there in the uh, director of the jazz program mm-hmm. so um yeah we've just been doing auditions and uh meetings and all that sort of stuff at the moment yep so it's good to have a little bit of a break from the daily teaching there so, yeah yeah are you are you gigging currently yeah i'm still playing in lots of um different bands everything from sort of like corporate function type bands with Roger Fox, um, also in a, a covers band called The Hustle that mm-hmm. plays everywhere from cosy clubs to, you know, corporate functions and weddings and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, yeah, anything. I, I played in a, a Brazilian big band on last Thursday. Um, I still play a lot at church. And uh, so I'm busy all over the place, yeah. you know, doing all kinds of different styles of gigs and and things like that so um yeah i think it's important to to keep the whole playing thing going yeah so, that's great yeah and, and obviously it's all styles it's yeah. not just it's not just jazz because you are you um specifically teaching jazz at at the uni yeah it, it is jazz focus but uh, we i mean alongside the jazz i'm always teaching the the history of of, of drumming, yep. early R&B drumming, we look at all, um, you know, as well as sort of Afro-Cuban and Brazilian music. So it's sort of got jazz in the middle, but we've got all the other music along the other sides of it. Yep. 
pretty much you're not going to make a living totally from playing jazz. So right. I th- think it's sort of our responsibility to, to keep everybody up to things that they need to learn how to do as well. So yeah, uh, we do a lot of percussion as well. So a lot of, a lot of hand percussion. Mm-hmm. Um, I've definitely had a lot of gigs where I play percussion instead of drum set. Mm-hmm. And, and that would have been, you know, uh, one of my earliest experiences was with Kerry Buchanan, you know, where he was the drummer yep. and I was the percussionist. Yep. And same with um, five years of dancing with the stars. It was Leighton Greening playing drums and playing percussion right. oh, for that it? on uh, TV. So so I've done quite a few percussion gigs um, and I can see how that's sort of a, a really great skill for everybody to learn um, if you're not the drummer, you know, which yeah. often comes up you know yeah yeah of course yeah all right let's yeah. let's roll back to the early days when it all first began yeah um, musical family yeah yeah definitely musical family my um my mother's a violin teacher and her father was a trumpet teacher so i'm a third generation um, music teacher and my dad also played the trombone not professionally but um so it's definitely music there and um, so my parents were really supportive of me pursuing music. Um, yeah, you know, and pretty much that was the thing that I was best at, um, that I thought I could make a living from. So, um, so yeah, my parents and um, the teachers that I've had, uh, like Bud Jones, really um, made me feel like I could do it, you know, that I could have a, a good crack at you know becoming a professional musician so without their kind of like support you know I probably would have given in and done something else you know but I don't know what you know yeah right um can you tell me a little bit about Bud Jones because I saw his name um in your bio and I I tried to have a bit of a look around yeah on Google for him today yeah Yeah. Bud Jones Bud Jones was, was probably one of my earliest inspirations really um uh, my parents used to take me to the uh, New Zealand Symphony Orchestra concerts quite regularly. Mm-hmm. And um, and so Bud Jones, uh, he's from the US, and he kind of um, joined the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra way back in the late 60s. I think it might have been like 1967, 68. And um, so he was... Around that era, he was probably one of the best drummers in New Zealand um, just because he had, like, a really great American uh, university education and experience and all that sort of thing. So um, I sort of looked up to him. He was the one of the founding members of um, what was the New Zealand Jazz Orchestra as well that did a couple of albums. And um, so he, and he was kind of my role model because he... He played in an orchestra, but he was also a jazz drummer. He could read, he could play a lot of percussion things. So he he was really my main mentor through um, my teen years, and uh, I studied for at least six years with him. Mm. Um, he's he's the main sort of um, person that I would um, say gave me the the hope and inspiration that I could actually become, you know, professional musician but yeah he's he's currently retired now um and unfortunately he he suffered a a terrible stroke and uh, he's kind of only got 
the use of one side of his his um, body, but um, I still visit him as often as I can, and he's still, you know, really into music and mm. and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, he he would be kind of one of the, the main sort of people that I looked up to um, in my formative years, and um, I didn't actually start having lessons with him until I was about thirteen or fourteen. Um, and um, so prior to that, you know, I was having lessons with um, a guy called Ken Oxford, who's in now lives in Christchurch, and um, he was sort of more of a brass band, pipe band, military-style sort of drummer. So that was kind of my early year, inspired by the snare drum. I think firstly from hearing um, um, from hearing, um, pipe by Scottish DNA kind of resonated with hearing those Scottish pipe band drums, and uh, so and then I gravitated towards anything that had snare drum in it. So it was like, like marching, anything to do with marching and and that. So I, I really got into the snare drum. Still love the snare drum, and um, won a few snare competitions. You know, that had to do with the brass band and that sort of thing. So. Um, and also seeing orchestral kind of snare drumming. Um, so that, that was a big part of um, my early development, which is not such a popular thing these days with people who want to start out learning the drums. Right. But, it, but it is something that everybody really needs to kind of like ha- have some sort of mastery over, um, I think, you know. So, yeah. See, um my first teacher um, was Norman Gadd. Um, right, you, Norman, you, yeah. You probably know Norman. Yeah, yeah. Yep. He was a colleague with, yeah, yeah, he was a colleague with Bud Jones and, and that sort of thing, yeah. He was a taskmaster, yeah. man. <laughs> See, we, my, dad, <laughs> my dad used to take me over the hill from Masterton up to Johnsonville once a week. And um, and I, I, I studied with him for a year Um. But and I never got to sit at his drum kit. Eh? I used to have to walk in with my sticks and my <laughs> my my music and my exercises and just st- he'd be sitting down at his chair, right in front right in front of me with with the snare drum and I'd just have to play and that was it. That was my lessons, you know. And it wasn't until I I met you when you actually and because I, I kind of was expecting something similar. And I think the first lesson you were like, right. yeah, "Have a seat, man. Have a play." I'm like. Oh, are you sure? Am, am I allowed? Yeah. You know, <laughs> but it, it, it was great. It was it was yeah. good. It was good to learn that that rudimental stuff. Definitely. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I still kind of do that. Yeah. Has it always been drums for you? Was there any other instrument that inspired you early on, or you always gravitated to drums? Yeah, it's all. It's always been drums. Yeah, I, I definitely didn't want to play the violin or the trombone. <laughs> So, um, yeah, but, um, yeah, I've got photographs that my parents took of me, you know, from age three, you know, know, beating on tin cans. And and I think one of the first drums I got was an old World War II army snare drum with rope tension kind of things, and that was kind of like, well, you know. Um, So, yeah, it's always been drums. I think I thought about the saxophone at one point, but it was like that was totally unaffordable. <laughs> yeah, right. But um, you know, so I just hang with the drums. And uh, but you know, I play a little bit of keyboard. Um, we 
a little bit of vibraphone, um, you know, tune percussion. Um, but yeah, and I don't really sing, you know, and I don't <laughs> feel confident about that. <laughs> but I can, you know, not publicly, you know. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. Who, who yeah, it's were, always been drums. Yeah. Who were the early um, drummer inspirations? Yeah, well, I would say, um, you know, Bud Jones was definitely one of the earlier ones, but um, yep. within New Zealand, um, and then I was, you know, obviously influenced by what recordings my parents had. So mm. they, you know, they had recordings of the Dave Brubeck Quartet, you know, so Joe Morello was one of those guys. Um, but my parents also bought a lot of local New Zealand recordings um and so some of the people that really influenced me early on would have been frank Gibson jr um and also ross burge who um was in roger fox's band and then later on went on to be with the mutton birds and mm. and uh, he's still playing he was he was actually a, a big influence on me and then Roger Sellers who wound up my colleague at, at the university for for many many years we were really good friends and um, his playing and his wisdom and that definitely uh, touched and has moved a lot of different drummers um, so those were some of the early influences I you know I, I used to listen to Steve Gadd a lot without really knowing Steve Gadd was, you yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, my parents used to belong to a, a record club called the the World Record Club or something. They'd get a catalogue and they'd pick all these albums and then I'd sort of look at them and it had albums. Um, and um, so, yeah, I, I used to listen to that quite a lot. And um, uh, then, you know, I would get an album like the best of George Benson. It had like everyone from Jeff Beccaro to J.R. Robinson on there. And so I just started listening to those guys, but I never really knew how significant a lot of these players were until much later on. Yep. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I, you know, I listened to a lot of different players, but I wasn't heavily into like a lot of the, the great jazz drummers of, of, uh, say like Philly Joe Jones or Max Roach or Art Blakey, my parents didn't have any of those recordings, you know, so I was pretty much sort of brought up on what they had, you know, which was Dave Brubeck or uh, drummers like Shelley Mann, mostly West Coast kind of jazz drummers. Um, and so, you know, it was I was pretty limited to what came across our black and white TV on ready to roll at six <laughs> o'clock every Saturday or, um, <laughs> you know, what recordings uh, my sister bought, like if it was an ABBA album or something like that. So it was pretty limited for me through the 70s, you know, when I grew up. But, um, yeah. right. So with that sort of um, variation in music, I, I guess you would have been not just sitting down and, and playing along to jazz records, so you would have been playing to you know, ABBA records and that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I sort of learned to play the drum set initially by myself and and that's kind of um, some of the reasons why I, I'm actually left-handed but I set my drum kit up right-handed, you know. Yep. Um, 
right-footed, but I play open-handed. And um, and that was just purely out of ignorance, you know, because I saw everybody on TV and how they had their drum kit set up. And so the first drum kit that I got, which, which was a real hybrid of Beverly drums and pearl bits and pieces and things like that. So <laughs> I had no instruction on that. And I just sort of started tapping away with, with sisters at ABBA Records and trying to play along to, um, you know, different jazz recordings and even even mimicking brushes, you know, I, had, I guess I had a set of brushes, I had no idea what I was doing. But, you know, for some reason I thought it was cool and um, and I just kept on with it and then eventually I had to get drum lessons on how to play the drum kit. And um, it was pretty much, I learned everything from Bud Jones, you know, um, probably from when I was about 13 or 14. So before that, it was mostly snare drum, playing brass bands and orchestras and tapping away, playing very basic kind of rock beats and things like that and, and knew nothing, you know, yep. um, until I got to Bud Jones. So Now, what, what did Bud Jones sort of say when you rocked up and sat down in his drum kit but was playing your your left hand on the hi hat, but traditional grip with your right hand because I've never seen that before. You're the only you're the only guy I've ever seen yeah. that, that plays like that. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think I was probably one of the only guys he'd seen as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He didn't say much about it, and he didn't he didn't sort of see it as a big issue. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's good. So he kind of he kind of went with it and. Um, you know, it's got its bonuses mm. uh, for playing time, but it gets a little bit kind of mixed up when you have to do drum fills, you know. Right, um, right, I gotcha. So, you know, um, yeah. Because you'd, be, you'd, be, people... you'd be naturally left, sorry, you'd be sort of naturally left-hand lead, but then your left hand's obviously way over to the left. Yeah, because yeah. Simon Phillips plays open-handed. Yeah, yeah, and, and the reason right. the reason he did that, I mean, he was a right-handed player, but um, you know, the older yeah. like he he was kind of he just wanted his drum kit to get bigger and bigger, and he he got this this ten-inch tom, and he wanted to set it up on his left, but it meant his his hi hat he couldn't play his hi hat because he had to drop his hats really low. So then he just decided yeah. to play open-handed, and and taught himself that way. Yeah, you know? I, th- I think mm. I, I think he was highly influenced by. Uh, Billy Cobham, who, yeah. who was probably one of the first well-recognised open-handed drummers, and so Simon's drum kit looked a lot like like Billy Cobham. And then Lenny White was was also uh, an open-handed drummer, is an open-handed drummer. Mm. And then Will Kennedy from the Yellow Jackets yep. is is another guy that that plays that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a few really good players that I guess who's the other guy that plays for um the Dave Matthews band? Um oh, Carter, Carter Beaufort. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 He's a pretty monster player. He plays that way as well. Yeah. Um Yeah, so there's there's a few people that play that way. Um and so I've kind of um can play some stuff right handed to demonstrate to my students. Right. But um, the way I kind of get around it is I put a floor tom on my left mm-hmm. next to the high. 
So I had floor toms on either side. And and when Dave Weckl came along and he was kind of doing that because of the Gary Chester kind of method, yep. um, I thought, oh, that's good. Well, I'll just do that, you know. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. so I've, I've tried to have the two floor tom thing, one on either side with, with a lot of my setups. Right. Um, but otherwise, I've just learned sticking-wise how to sort of play on a, a, dr- a regular drum kit. So I just try and be adaptable to, you know, whatever the setup is because a lot of the times you're having to sit in on someone else's drum kit, you know, yeah, if it's right. um, a big opening for people and you can't sort of mess around too much, you know. Yep. So, yep. yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about um, as you're starting to get a little bit older. Um, so you you yeah. um, started getting lessons with, with Bud at age, about age 14. Yep. So, what sort of um, what sort of band experiences were going on at that time? Yeah. Well, that time I was um, I was playing in you know all the different youth orchestras: Wellington Youth Orchestra, National Youth Orchestra, Upper Hutt Brass Band, um, Symphonic Bands. You know, just anything that was going, and then anything that was going on at school. You know, I went to Upper Hutt College, and um, so that was quite a strong school at the time musically. So we had um, – they had a sort of a smallish band, and that's kind of where I started to get my experiences of playing some jazz. Um, I had different friends and people that would, that would jam with me, and um, so it was still pretty limited. Um I got opportunities. Uh, there was like a, a, Asian, uh, a Wellington Secondary Schools big band that Bud Jones sort of took a um, couple of times. So I was in that. And um, there was also, um, uh, what else did we have? Oh, at the time, um, Bud Jones was teaching at what was the Wellington Polytechnic Conservatorium of Music, which is where I wound up going and mm-hmm. wound up teaching at eventually. But um, they often um, would have a big band um, and they would sort of share the drum seat around. So I got invited to come along and play along in that. Um, I, I did audition for the National Youth Jazz Orchestra, you know, when I was like 14, but was definitely not up to it at that point. Um, and I think Kerry, Kerry got in there when he was 15. Um, then we were both in the National Youth Jazz Orchestra in 1986. Right. And he was the drummer and I was the, the backup drummer or percussionist. And um, so, yeah, so that all those things during my high school years. I also got to play with, um, I don't know if you heard of Lance Sewer. He's a guitar player from New Zealand but lives in Melbourne. And he was, um, he was on that Jesus Christ Superstar band that Ian Jones was in. Oh, um, right. Yep. And all that sort of thing. But he was, he was um, somebody that I jammed with a lot and actually did some of my first jazz gigs with with him and uh, another well-known New Zealand guitarist Lee Jack been around for a while and so it was they gave me some of my first experiences of playing jazz that sort of thing really gave me the confidence to 
to think that, oh, maybe I could do this, you know? Yep. Um, yeah, so that, that was kind of the high school period, you know, just sort of trying to get my chops together and, and becoming more aware of what I needed to be able to do to become, you know, uh, a working drummer. Right. Were you seeing yourself as potentially being a teacher at that stage? I wasn't really. I mean, I'd always been teaching all through, like I used to have a couple of different friends from school would say, oh, can you teach me the drums? And I'd go, oh, yeah. So I'd give them dressings in my bedroom for $5, you know, and something like that. Um, I didn't really think much of it because my mother was always teaching violin in the living room and thinking, oh, yeah, I don't really want to be a a teacher. Um, I think I had more lofty uh, dreams (laughs) Um, and teaching wasn't, wasn't really one of the main things, but you know, I wound up, you know, doing a bit of that, especially um, when I left school and started going to Polytechnic, and I, I did a little bit of teaching on Saturday mornings um, at at a high school and things like that. But uh, yeah, I, I wasn't really, I wasn't really aiming to become a, a music teacher. Um, at that stage, yeah. So, right. Yeah. I guess sort of the older you're, you're getting, you would have started to be more ex- more exposed to more of that sort of uh, that American, steel, you know, Steely Dan, Toto. Yeah. That kind of stuff. I, yeah, I remember that. I remember the first the first Steely Dan album I heard was, was Gouch. Mm-hmm. Was a friend at school, you know, because we were talking about uh, who's your favourite drummer and I said, oh, yeah, Steve Gadd, you know, and they went, oh, I've got this album that's uh, by Steely Dan. They went, oh, yeah, it's got Steve Gadd. I'm like, well, oh, let me check it out. <laughs> so, and that was my first Steely Dan album. Um, but I think the other drummers that I started to become more aware of were through purchasing the Modern Drummer magazine yep. that I, I think I got the first modern drummer magazine I got was the Steve Gadd issue in like 1983 or something like that. Oh, right. And so when I was aware that there was a, a magazine that had all these um, articles on drummers, especially ones that I've never heard of from the States, I was kind of like, you know, addicted to like, oh, when's the next magazine coming out? I'm going to grab yeah. that. You know, just, just on that, like I remember when, when you were teaching me, you'd come to the school, you had this massive stick bag. <laughs> and you open the stick bag and you just sticks in your mallets and then you had modern drummer magazines in there and you used to quite often pull them yeah. out like you'd pull the new one out because yeah. you know this this is when yeah um this is when you could you know when they got um mailed to you or you you know you went to the news agent and got them you know so you'd sometimes you'd rock up to to um the lesson and you know pull oh here's the latest magazine you know and I'd be like, oh, I haven't yeah, got mine yeah. yet because I haven't got the subscription. Yeah. I've got to wait till it turns up at the shop and mastered it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I definitely was – have – I've got just about all the magazines, yeah. you know, hard copies of them. Yeah. And, right. um, so that was, that was a pretty influential part of my development was in connection to the, the drumming world was through the, the modern drumming magazines. So, yeah, yeah so through those magazines – when they started to feature different drummers like Jeff Picaro, I was like, oh, okay, I've heard of him. And that was like, oh, he must be pretty important, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. the magazine sort of like was telling me, 
this guy is really important. You better find out about him, you know? Yeah. Uh, that's pretty much how I learned about Vinnie Colaiuta. He was on one of, I think, the same year as the Steve Gadd, maybe, yep. maybe yep. a bit earlier. And, um, and then my sister got a, a Joni Mitchell album that had Vinnie on it um, called Wild Things Run Fast. And it was like, and I just thought, what's this? Oh, my sister's got some folk singer, Joni Mitchell. And then I was looking at the credits and going, Vinnie Colaiuta, you know, and then I was listening to it. I was going, wow, this guy's amazing, you know. So um, yes, yes. that was my, um, the, the modern dram- drummer magazine really influenced and informed me and sort of taught me about who I should be checking out, you know. And then, of course, you know, you know. Yeah, on the Vinnie Colaiuta thing, I'd heard, because, you know, I'd seen him in the magazines as well, but never really heard him. But a friend of mine yeah. um, gave me um, Gino Vanelli Nightwalker to listen to. Right. Yeah. And right from that first song, it's like smack Vinnie Colaiuta. <laughs> yeah, wow, yeah. man. You know? Yeah, that was, yeah, that was yeah. definitely a, yeah, that was definitely a um, yeah. real light bulb moment. Sort of made me yeah, yeah. start thinking a different way about drums too, you know? Yeah, pretty awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, he was, he was, once I found out about Vinny, it was like, oh, yeah, I better check this guy out, you know. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, and it was the same with Jeff Beccaro as well, you know. I sort of um, had seen his name on a few different things, you know, and um, I thought he was great. Um, but, um, yeah, it probably wasn't until, you know, different magazines and different friends were going, hey, have you checked out? This Toto album was like, oh no, I haven't heard that one, you know. So I was pretty naive about what was who I should be listening to. Um, you know, Bud Jones was was really sort of into big band music. So he was kind of like I mean, he had some pretty some pretty cool records too that I I hadn't heard that had Steve Gadd on it. And um, he introduced me pretty much to Buddy Rich and mm. um, the drummers of, of Count Basie, Woody Herman's band, um, and um, Maynard Ferguson, um, all these sort of big band ch- charts and things. So he taught me how to read drum music and, and interpret it and mm-hmm. got me hip to all the sort of the big band kind of styles of music. And so that became a real focus and um, probably more than um, – sort of rock and pop things. Um, and I'd sort of developed a bad attitude towards pop or rock drumming and thinking at that very naive age that that was sort of something that was low jazz drumming. Right. So uh, I was pretty naive about that. And it wasn't until I finished sort of, well, yeah, I guess my second year at um, Polytech and I got to join a, a a, cover, a rock covers band, and um, and that was when I realised, wow, this stuff is actually as difficult as playing jazz, but just in a different way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, for me, that was kind of, you know, when I was probably about 18 was when I started to think differently about all kinds of music and drumming and that sort of thing. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Cool, man. Now, um, so you, when did you graduate yeah, so I I, um, I didn't do um, year 13 or the SEP form at school. I went straight from the sixth form into Polytech. Yep. The three years there, my last year was 1988. Mm-hmm. And then um, 
yeah, then I spent a year uh, full-time teaching uh, around all the Wellington and Hutt Valley schools, mm-hmm. trying to save desperately to um, leave New Zealand and go to the go to the US. So I went to the, the Dick Grove School of Music. So that was when I graduated, and I was very, again, very naive. Thought that um, New Zealand didn't really have much left to offer me because I was all just thinking about me, 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 right. and what I what I was going to do. Um, you know, and so yeah, graduated in '88 and started to um, you know save to go to the US, and and I was hoping to stay there as long as I could. You know, right. So, so and sorry, that yeah. was the, that was the Grove. Yeah, so it was at the time that the Dick Grove School of Music was based in uh, Van Nuys in Los Angeles. And again, I was sort of drawn to that through the advertising and the modern drummer magazine through the 80s. And they had these full-page ads and they had, you know, on the faculty or guest faculty was Jeff Picaro and and, um, Alex Acuna and J.R. Robinson and, and all these people that I've read about knew that they were important people in the whole studio scene in Los Angeles. And and not only that, they had um, percussion guys like Emil Richards um, and um, Dan Greco and, and, you know, all these people that were sort of involved in the studio music scene. So... I was thinking that's what I wanted to pursue is to become a studio musician. And because I'd had a lot of orchestral experience, I was thinking, yeah, I'll be able to just get into the studios and I'll do a little bit of percussion and a little bit of drum set. And so my sort of role models for that were like drummers like Harvey Mason, you know, who was, was also a good percussionist um, and obviously a great drummer. Um, another drummer called Steve Schaefer, who nobody really hears much about, but he did a lot of, you know, TV work, um, that sort of thing. So I was, that was my, I was thinking the Grove School of Music is where I would meet all the people that had all the connections into the studio. And, um, and they did. And I got to meet them all. I got to, you know, go to sessions and all that sort of thing. But it soon became a, a, a very strong reality that there was no way in because <laughs> yeah, right. it was it was it was pretty elitist and um, yeah you really had to be able to play reasonably well everything you know if you wanted to get into percussion kind of side of things um, as well as the drum set so yeah that that year 1990 is when I I spent the year in Los Angeles and. That was a really pivotal point for me and that, that just changed my whole life thinking and helped me really to decide to come back to New Zealand and share everything that I had picked up in the States because 1990, you know, sure, there wasn't, there wasn't internet. Most of the stuff was about videos and books and things like that, you know, and... Um, so I just thought, man, there's so much potential in New Zealand um, to uh, spread all the sort of info that I picked up there because um, I was really aware that there weren't too many people that knew the kinds of things that I was learning over there. So um, so that was really pivotal. You know, and I, 
I'd become a Christian during that, that time as well. And it was sort of, I really felt that God was leading me to come back to New Zealand. My parents were still in New Zealand. And um, yeah, I could just really see the potential of what I could give back. And I knew that that was going to be way more satisfying for me than pursuing um, something that was more focused on myself. And um, and and that has really, the I've just seen so much fruit from that decision to come back and get fully into teaching. Yep. Um, so, so yeah, 1990 was was really a pivotal moment for me. It was it was, and I I met Jeff Picaro, I mm. met J.R. Robinson. So can you, you can know, you tell me uh, tell me the tell me the Jeff Picaro story? Cause yeah, I, cause, so, yeah, because early sorry early on um, before we recorded the um, Jeff Picaro spotlight um, episode, um, I was hoping that we could have talked about this beforehand and maybe pre-recorded, but it didn't happen. So yeah, tell tell me the Jeff Picaro story. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Grove School of Music, um, you know, it was a 40-week course, um, so it was pretty full-on. But every, I think they used to have uh, every month, so yeah, every four weeks they'd have um, a guest drummer come in on a Saturday morning and do a, a drum clinic. So we saw heaps and heaps of different drummers, and one of them, you know, was Jeff Picaro that was coming. We were all kind of, <gasps> you know, oh, Jeff Picaro, we're going to finally get to meet him, you know. Um, and we were sort of like pre-warned, don't ask him to do a drum solo. <laughs> was like, and, don't, and don't ask him to play Rosanna. <laughs> so it was kind of like, okay. Um, and, uh, and it was like, um, he probably won't play much. Um, he'll probably just want to talk. So the, the brief was bring recordings that Jeff has played on and ask him about them. Okay, now all I had with me was a little box of cassette tapes, okay, and one of them was um, Giroux and, um, um, you know, which has a track Morning on it and uh, Black and Blue, I think, was the other uh, track on there. And so I, I just couldn't think, what the heck can I ask Jeff Picaro without making myself look like an idiot, you know? And um, so I kind of avoided all the Toto stuff and thought, oh, well, hmm. I've always, so in hindsight, I think it was such a dumb question, but I asked him, you know, did he play one-handed or two-handed on Al Jarreau's, you know, black and blue in this sort of chorus bit where there's an open hi-hat thing going on? Mm -hmm. So that was my one question. And, I, and for the life of me, I can't remember too much of what all the other stuff that other people asked him, you know. Yep. It just seemed to go by really quick. But, you know, I got to shake his hand and, you know, and um, and he just kind of chuckled when it, he says, oh, yeah, I remember that track, you know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he said, one-handed, one-handed on the hi-hat. And then he played like four measures of the groove and was like, yeah, that, just to kind of make sure that that's what he'd done. <laughs> and that was, you know. Yeah. sit back down you know um <laughs> but he um, that during that whole period that's that was when they were recording the past present tracks that were added to that cd yep. with um with the, the new singer jean michel whatever his name was um, Byron, whatever it was yeah Byron, yep. yeah 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 and 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 yeah he brought a demo tape of it to this um you know, to this clinic, you know, and so he was playing us the tracks unmixed, 
I still sounded like the, the real deal. You know, he had a cassette tape of the tracks that were going to go on the past present album, and he didn't play the whole thing of each track, but he was he was saying real positive things about the singer and oh, this is going to be a new thing for Toto and blah blah blah, and. Um, um, yeah, and, and then he was sort of saying, yeah, we're starting to, we've started rehearsals for our tour, for this past present tour thing. And so, hey, look, if any of you guys want to come down and have a listen, and I was like, yes, I'd love to, you know. Um, and he said, I oh, just, just talked to the guy, this other guy called uh, Jeff Wallace, who was, who was one of the, the teachers there. He says, yes, yeah, talk to him and he'll, he'll arrange you to come in. And I was going, oh, yeah, okay. yeah, let's go to Toto rehearsing. But, you know, when I asked this guy, oh, can we go down? Oh, no, I don't think we can manage that. So it was kind uh-huh. of, hmm. So, yeah, I, that was as close as I got to actually sort of seeing Jeff again after that yep. period. Uh, I didn't have a car in LA. I, you know, I only had a, enough money to survive and I lived pretty close to the school. So I didn't really get to venture out and, and see, you know, t- much but, but yeah that was my my Jeff Picaro moment you know awesome. and I do remember that much but I don't really remember too much more about what was going on and we didn't get any recording out of it and that sort of thing but um but it was kind of um um it re- really made me think now hold on because at that point I was really thinking you have to be able to play like Vinnie Coluta in order to to make it in Los Angeles you know and mm-hmm. so seeing Jeff play and talk about what he was doing made me realise, well, hold on, Jeff doesn't do drum solos. He doesn't do anything like Dave Weckl or Vinnie Coluta. And yet look at all the albums this guy's played on. So he must be doing something right, you know? And that's when I sort of realised that there's kind of this um, unquantifiable kind of mystique thing that those guys have all got. Um, all the record producers and artists want, you know, and so it totally turned my my goals around about drumming from wanting to be, you know, someone who was very technically uh, proficient like Dave Weckl or Vinnie Colaiuta to, to somebody who was more like J.R. Robinson and Jeff Picaro. Because I met, you know, J.R. there, saw him twice, mm. and, man, that guy can just lay it down like yep. you wouldn't believe you know different from jeff but man that he was another one just like turn my head around it was jr robinson it's like mm. wow you know and seeing him live is is quite a different experience to how he comes across on this um, on a recording because he really plays loud you know like yeah, yeah. i couldn't believe it you know it was right. like yeah, so yeah, so that was my Jeff, my Jeff moment, and that really was sort of a, an awakening of of Jeff McCarroll. Whereas before, I I sort of you know knew he was great. I'd listened to all the Toto albums and and that sort of thing, but my head was still in Dave Weckl and Steve Gadd kind of fusion type drumming, you know. So yeah. So when you came back to New Zealand, did you have an idea how you were going, going to go about teaching and, and did you, you know, develop your own curriculum or? Yeah, so Grove School of Music, the, the percussion curriculum was set up by Peter Donald, 
who um, and he, he was another guy that was a jazz drummer predominantly, but he wound up being the drummer for Olivia Newton-John. Oh. That was his sort of um, big thing. Uh, so he was he was primarily a jazz drummer, but he was super organized, had the whole curriculum so well set up. It really inspired me because I'd never seen or thought of anything like that in New Zealand. So I, I sort of took that idea and um, thought, right, I'm going to try and um, get my teaching really organized like, um, like they've got going. And so that's been sort of my, my goal ever since I've been back. And, um, and I knew I should um, write my own material because I didn't really see books and things that were um, set out the way that I wanted to teach, you know. So, mm. um, so basically, yeah, I just started writing my own exercises and didn't use too many other people's books. Um, and so by the time I started teaching, you know, 1991, I came back to New Zealand and I realized that all the teaching jobs that I had before I left, you know, it was impossible to get them back, all right? Because with itinerant teaching in New Zealand, once you let go and they get somebody else in, in there, that's it, you know, <laughs> so, right. until they decide to leave. Right. So there was nothing, nothing back in Wellington, but my sister at the time was living in Hastings, and she sort of said, well, why don't you come and stay with us for a little while and then you can eventually move back to Wellington. So, so I did do that and um, I started to get um, a whole bunch of teaching around Hastings and Havelock North. And, um, and then um, by the end of 1991, I got invited to start playing in a band called Bad Billy and the Blue Flames. And that was the band that Ian Jones was in mm -hmm. And so he left and went to England. Um, the trumpet player, Vaughan Roberts, invited me to come and try out for the band. So, so I went down there and I started playing with those guys. So by 1992, um, which is when I met you, um, I, did, I, had, I didn't quite have enough teaching in Wellington. And I, I was trying to get the magic number of 22 and a half hours teaching through the education department because that meant that you were supposedly full time right. and it would mean after a year of teaching at 22 and a half hours your pay would go up so <laughs> so that's that was my motivation I was like trying to do as much teaching I could to, to try and clock up the hours and get my hourly rate up and um, and that's so I was doing it two days in Hastings by 1992 and then I stopped in Masterton at Macquarie College there and did, did an hour or two there, I can't remember, um, and then um, went on to Upper Hutt. Mm. So I, I basically was, that was like the craziest year, you know. Um, mm. But that's where I started to kind of write all these exercises and, and, um, and started to collect all of those play-along books. I think you have mentioned you, you, I showed you some Billy Joel Album. Yeah, I, that's right. I, yeah. <laughs> that was one of the earlier ones that was sort of. Yeah, yeah it was. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was uh, yeah. Liberty Liberty DeVito play along book, and 
two of the songs specifically that we did because I had to I had to do two songs as part of my school certificate. Um, plus, yeah. I also had to do yeah. a composition, which which you helped me with, and, and I'll talk a bit about that as well. So the songs yeah. were um, um, "I Go to Extremes," right, um, right and yeah. the other song was um, "I Love You Just the Way You Are." Two very contrasting right, right. songs, you know. And up to that point, up to that point, um, you know, I'd read a bit, and you you would also, you know, improve in my reading because I'd also learnt to read with Norman. Um, yeah. So my re- my reading wasn't too bad, and you know, rhythms and that kind of stuff was good. But what I didn't have an understanding of was the breakdowns of songs, like, like a breakdown of a song into parts. And up at up right, to that yeah. stage, I, I would just put a record on and just slam that record, you yeah. know, play whatever whatever yeah. dynamics. And but it wasn't until you showed me those two songs where, where each song was broken down into sections, and you know the yeah. dynamics were written on the book and. Um, this part yeah, builds, and then we changed, you know, to the right, and we do this such and such, and yeah. that really opened my eyes to to every song I ever played in every band up till oh, now. Cool. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that that was massive, and you know, it's a simple sort of thing, but unless somebody yeah, shows yeah. you, you you don't know, you don't really know. Yeah. The other thing that I had to do for my school certificate music was um, create a composition. Now. That was something that freaked me out because, you know, being a drummer, I'm like, how the hell am I going to compose something where as a guitarist can pick up a guitar and play a melody or, you know, play chords? I, I had no idea. And you you showed me how you don't just have to hit, you know, it's not just boom, clack, boom, boom, clack. Each instrument has different yeah. sounds and tones and you can change the tones. Yeah. And so I had this idea of – um my composition was called the storm. So basically, what it, what it was was. Oh, you know, I think I remember that. <laughs> and yeah, so yeah, basically, yeah. <laughs> basically, what it was was it started off as a lovely day, kids playing in the park, clouds start to come over, then it rains, then it's a storm, thunder, lightning, yeah. the clouds and stuff go away, yeah. the sun comes out, you know, the kids come out and play again. So that was that was that was the um. That's the story. So then we, yeah, you, know, yeah. you, you taught me to notate it, and then basically what we did was, you know, the sun's out, it's it's happy, the kids are skipping, so it was a lot of on the rims of the drums to make look like the kids were skipping, and then start sort of rolling the floor toms as the the clouds come over, and you know, sort of wind it up, and then it was like a thirty second solo right, right. of just going nuts. And that was how we, that's the, I think that's how we wrote it too, was just like open notation, 30 second solo or whatever. And then that kind of died off. Yeah. Um, and then yeah. I kind of, kind of reversed it, you know, and um, ended up getting really, really high marks for that. Yeah. When I, when I did the exam. So, yeah. So that, yeah. you know, that yeah, experience. I remember that now. <laughs> so that experience, that experience, um, you know, taught me that, yeah, drums are not just, it's not not just playing beats and grooves that, that you can actually compose from yeah. it and it's a, you know, yeah. all these different sounds. Yeah, so that that's was, cool. That yeah. Good, yeah. 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 No, that's good. Yeah. Um, the other thing, the other things you taught me, I think I was very, um, very rigid in my playing and you, you sort of taught me the technique of sort of, 
for example, instead of playing 16th notes all with my hand like this, which you can't, because people can't see because it's an audio podcast, but <laughs> you, you taught me to, <laughs> to kind of, you know, you, you're going to do the one movement the with down, your arm, down. but you're going to do an up and down with your hand, you know. Right. I'd never seen that before. Yeah, um, yeah. Nor- Norman didn't teach me that. It was all, it was all other fingers or, right. or hands, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and just, you know, just, just general um, – general technique and comfort and sitting comfortably and that kind of stuff. And yeah, I've taken that, you know, right through till now. So yeah, man. Awesome. Yeah. Thank that's you. Great. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 You're <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's, that's good. Yeah. I've, I've, I'm sure I'm, I've taught a few people uh, compositions that have kind of got those sort of elements of um, nature. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, into it. But you know, it's kind of a, a good way to get started, though, isn't it? You know, totally, eh? Like that, totally. So. Yeah. Because, yeah, when it was presented to me, like, you know, you, you're going to have to compose something on your drums. I'm like, what? How am I going to do that? Like, how do you do that? There's no melody <laughs> or anything, you know? But, yeah, yeah, that was cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but, yeah, if uh, people that have listened to the Jeff Picaro Spotlight um, podcast that we did, um, my introduction to Jeff Picaro was – was by Lance here. Um, I rocked up to listen. I rocked up to listen one day, and you were set. You were sad. You were a bit down, and then yeah. you told you, you told me, "Have you heard of Jeff?" Because I, I think I asked you why you were sad. And you said, "Oh, have you heard, heard of Jeff Bacaro?" And I said, "Yeah, I've heard of him." Um, and he goes, "Well, anyway, he he died today. I think you just found out that he died that day." Um, and then I think yeah. for that lesson, we just talked about him and. I think you may have had a um, one of your modern drummer magazines might have had something like an like a picture of him or something like that, or and then yeah, you told me what sort of stuff he'd played on, and then from that moment, from that day, that started my sort right. of um, my uh, I'm not going to say obsession, <laughs> but uh, my my interest in him, you know, and he's you know as you may know become probably the biggest influence you know, for me as a drummer, you know, from, wow. from that moment, from yeah, that moment. Yeah. 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 Cause I mean, I, I can't really, I can't really remember too much yeah, yeah. about me telling you that, you know, but I know that that, yeah, that whole period, um, I, I had written out various drum charts from the Toto seventh one album, you know, uh, that, that were definitely playable, Yep. you know, for intermediate students and that sort of thing. So I was really into Jeff at that point, you know, and it was a real shock like it was with anyone that, that had heard about him. Yep. Um, and having met him only a couple of years ago, it was yeah, like, of course, wow, yeah. unbelievable, you know. Um, so, yeah, yeah, um, that's, that's incredible. I was like teaching a bunch of high school students at that yeah, yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. Yep. A, whole, a whole bunch of those um, little tunes from from that album that, that had some easier type beats yeah. on there, um, and I think around that same time before that, Jeff had just released the video, you know, and um, so that the some of the stuff from that video was really influencing my thinking and playing as well, you know. Cool. Mm. So yeah, yeah, that's incredible. I would have to say that too from that. From that point too, when he passed away, it, it piqued my interest even more, and yep. um, 
I got really, really into uh, Jeff Beccaro. Good friend of mine, Tony Gaeta, was another massive friend uh, or fan of, of Jeff Beccaro. And he kind of really switched me onto some of the albums I didn't know much about, you know, and um, so the Michael McDonald stuff. And, yep. and um, so that was, it was, yeah, it was definitely um, uh, a, grow, a growth and inspirational period for, about Jeff, you know. So Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, man. Awesome. Um, now, so, uh, yeah, it was only 1992 um, that you were teaching me at Macora. So um, from that point on, that point on, um, what what did you end up doing after the end of 1992? Because you didn't start doing, you didn't yeah. come back. You didn't come back to no, teach, I, teach through that way. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It was, I, I felt I really struggled with, you know, I still struggle with, you know, I'm a bit of a workaholic, as people who know me would say. But <laughs> so, so having to turn down work is not easy for me. But um, yeah, it just it wound up being that that, and I wound up um, getting plenty of teaching in 1993. Yep. Was when I got offered to start working at Wellington Polytechnic. Okay. Yep. So up before that, um, a couple of years before that, Bud Jones had been one of the drum teachers there and Roger Sellers was the other drum teacher. And then Bud left and um, so they had uh, they had asked me, Paul Dyan, who was the head of the jazz at the time, um, asked me if I would take over what Bud was doing. And so I had all these hours added to my teaching and, and I started gigging with all kinds of people and things like that. Uh, and so 1993, you know, was when I, um, yeah, the whole direction sort of changed. Um, I stopped the whole commuting thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, started, started to started to get into teaching at a tertiary level, you know. Yeah, awesome. Um, and so I've been just at the Jaguar since 1993. Right. Um, Continuous employment from when it went from Polytech to Massey University through to um, Victoria University now. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's been been quite a long stint. Probably the one of the longest employees of the, of the jazz school. That's great. Uh, so I feel very, very privileged. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, just back in 1992, you had a a little jazz trio. And I remember this because you came and did a um, performance in Masterton, and what I distinctly right. rem- yep, what I distinctly remember is the bass player had a six-string yeah. Yamaha bass, and I, I'd right. never seen one of them before. I'd I'd seen I'd seen them in magazines, but I yeah I'd never seen it before. Yeah. But yeah yeah, do you remember that trio? I can't remember the name of it. Um, yeah. I do remember yeah. I do remember buying a CD on that day, and and I do remember you telling me about. Um, how you recorded it, and I think it was it was one microphone over the drums, and you know, I, I I remember that. But um, yeah, when I uh, right. yeah I ended up getting rid of hundreds of CDs before I moved from New Zealand over here, so that probably was one that didn't make okay. the cut. I apologise. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, I I think that group was was a group called um, C for Cats, and. But I could be wrong. Around that period, I was I was with sort of like a fusion group, and the bass player is this guy called Tim Robertson, and um, 
he lives in the UK now, um, and it, the guitarist is this guy called Caleb Pritchard. And he was really into John Schofield and Mike Stern at the time. Um, and we were all kind of into that sort of um, fusion-y, rocky kind of music. So I, I'm, I think that was, I think if, it, if there was a CD, it was either one, like you said, that was just done like made at home or something like that. And at the time, I think it would have, wouldn't have even been a CD. It might have been a cassette. Would have been a you cassette know? tape, yeah. Yeah, a cassette, you know. I, I know that we did um, a radio program at Radio New Zealand. You could always go on there at Broadcasting House and record, you know, uh, original music or, or other people's, you know, your own arrangement of other people's music. So that may have the recording that, that you got. Um, right, okay. I think we had a saxophone player as well, but I could be wrong, you know. Mm. But, yeah, that was called c That was one of our sort of fusion jazz type groups, you know. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, back onto your full-time um, employment. So, um, yeah, yeah so, so you've been there since in the different incarnations since 1993 and, you, you know, you've um, you've taught – a fair bunch of people and uh, yeah, like we said sort of earlier on, you um, had Darren Mathiason, um as yeah. Your, yeah. Yeah. Darren yeah. was one of the one of the earlier ones. Yep. Yep. But uh, yeah, there's been a lot of a lot of drummers that have gone on to do really or in bands that are quite significant or that are sort of emerging today. Yep. Um I guess Matt Beechin with the Drax Project is is one of the the latest kind of students to kind of have some success. Um, I don't know if you've heard, you may not have even heard of the Drax Project in Australia, but but um, yeah, they they're sort of doing quite well. They've been opening for Christina Aguilera through Europe, oh, right. and oh, right. and now they're now they're um, they're living in LA. Um, they're signed with. Universal, and um, they've got a whole bunch of dates throughout September in the US, and they're about to re-release their album there. So, yeah, the drummer from that is uh, Matt Beechin, and he's from Upper Hutt, and, and mm-hmm. he did three years with me um, at um, New Zealand School of Music, uh, where he basically everybody in that group except the guitarist are all from the jazz course. So they all kind of did jazz and, but at the same time they were working on their pop tunes and jamming together and, yep. and then they've, they've gone that way, you know, but heaps of other drummers too. Like, like the guy, um, Jimmy Mack, who is kind of the keyboard Ableton live guy with the group, you know, with Lord. Yep. So he's actually pretty phenomenal drummer. Um, probably, better than Ben Barker as the drummer with Lord, but but he wound up being able to like I so he had lessons with me for like four years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, just when he was at high school, you know, uh, coming in for private lessons and uh, um, some other guys Myeli Manzanza is another guy that um, he's he's doing his own music and has played with um, Clive um, Oh, what's his name? Yeah, he's played with a bunch of different guys from LA and he's got his own recordings and things like that. 
Reuben Bradley has moved to Brisbane. He was around the same time as Darren Mathiasen, and he's really successful now teaching Griff University and doing gigs. And, um, all kinds of guys like Chris O'Connor um, plays with the Phoenix Foundation and, and, and that. Uh, Julian Dyan, Lady Six, and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I mean, I know they're all kind of like New Zealand-type groups, but... Um, so nobody's sort of hugely international, but um, still, oh, but, but still, quite good, quite good yeah. to see these guys out there doing stuff. Darren Matthias would probably be one of the, the more successful um, drummers out of that that whole bunch of guys there. But um, yeah, there's, there's been a whole bunch of drummers, and a lot of them have obviously gone on to teaching. Uh, one of them, my most successful students for teaching would be Johnny Wilson, who started up Good Time Music Academy, which is pretty big here in Wellington. Mm-hmm. And um, so for me, that's a real success to have a student that um, has gone on to, to start up a, his own music school. Um, and he actually taught Matt Beecham before Matt came to me. So, um, oh, cool. so just, yeah, so there's just been this real sort of, cyclical thing the people I've taught have then taught people and they wind up having lessons with me and then they go on and do something really big so mm. um, so that's for me it's the satisfaction is, is about you know passing on what I know so that other people you know can do what call do you know so I, I get a lot of satisfaction from just being part of the, the, the puzzle, the machine that kind of like helps people reach their goals, you know? Yeah, so that's great, man. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm still dedicated to that. And, um, you know, there's, there's still great people coming through. I've just done some auditions with some drummers that have come from Dunedin, Queenstown, Napier. They're all planning on to, um, coming to Wellington to study. Um, mm. So, yeah, the cycle just continues to go on. It's, it's been incredible, really. So what are, your, yeah. what are your thoughts on the way that you've had to change teaching, you know, with, with sort of the things with YouTube coming on the scene and, and people being able to access that, this stuff like really quickly? And, and um, yeah. how's that? Yeah. How have you had to change the way that you teach to kind of keep up with that? Does that make sense? That question makes sense. Yeah. Well, I, I have a, a huge 70-inch TV screen in my teaching <laughs> university. Right. Right. We're always referring to different videos and, uh, and YouTube clips. It is such a great learning tool. Um, yep. but, but here's the thing is that a lot of the people that I see posting even instructional things on YouTube haven't, you can tell they haven't done that ma- that many one-on-one lessons, yep. you know, and there's just a whole bunch of like intermediate steps and things that you can immediately help somebody with if it's a private individual lesson, you know. Um, so I haven't gotten into that just yet, you know, um, with the whole sort of like trying to do video lessons or anything like that. So uh, 
I still think that there's real value in, in individual lessons or small group lessons. And, you know, I continue to teach little kids on a Saturday morning beginner drum lessons purely because I kind of learn so much from doing that myself about technical things and, and little steps. And I, I try out little methods of like, of how I can get them to learn something. So the video thing is good is good for some people at certain levels. If you want to learn a specific kind of style of licks or you want to learn a specific kind of beat, um, it's quite good, you know, somebody breaking it down. And, but there's some really great transcriptions. People will, will play a Steve Gadd solo and down the bottom they've got yeah. a notation for it. It's like, wow, that's great. And you can slow it down on YouTube. So I think that's a fantastic resource. But at the end of the day, you know, the thing that they can't, well, they don't seem to teach on any of these videos is what to play and when to play it. Okay. And so you can learn millions of drum beats, but if you don't know when to play a specific thing, you know, just be mad at it. You have to have somebody mentor that to you. They, you have to have somebody show you how that goes, you know. Well, that, this kind of comes back, like, this comes back to what I was mm. saying before when you when you were teaching me out of that Liberty, Liberty DeVito book. Mm. Um, yeah. Here's, here's a song. Now, if I was just to play along with it, I would just, I'd just play. There'd be no dynamics or mm. I don't, I don't know why that, feel led into that and why it's you know you need somebody to sit you down and 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 tell you why you need to play that and why you should play that and you know dynamics and stuff like that so yeah i know exactly what you're saying yeah yeah it's sort of i think of myself as a musical tour guide because you could go through um a city you know, just driving through it, and you would miss so much stuff. But if you have somebody go, hey, you see that? And you know something about this, that, da, 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 you know? Um, so that's where if you've got somebody who's really experienced and can kind of um, highlight certain things, um, I think I see much of that on videos. I, don't, I, see, I, don't, I see a lot of technical things on videos, which is really important and great, but I don't see too much explaining about what to play and when to play it and, and how to do certain things. There's definitely, I haven't seen too much on big, big drumming, um, mm. but, or really about, you know, when it comes to jazz drumming and accompanying people and mm. what to play and when, when not to play and things like that. Um, so I think that that's still some areas for, for growth there and, if you've really got somebody that can sit down and say, hey, no, no, watch this, I'll show you, I'll play something, and then they go, huh, you really need somebody to like take that situation and then demonstrate, you know, a way of playing it, you know. Mm -hmm. For me, it has been how I've kind of learned things the best is sitting behind a drummer, like someone like Kerry Buchanan. I learned so much being the percussionist, sitting behind him, Watching him make all of his musical choices and how he interpreted things and 
that sort of stuff, you know, those those moments just invaluable. You know, like sitting behind Steve Gadd for a whole tour and watching what he was doing and hanging out with them, you know, same with Weckle and Reckless and that, all these cats that I've spent, you know, a good amount of time with, you know, you, you know, you don't get that from a video, you know. Mm. So, yeah. What's the biggest challenge as a teacher? Um, yeah, I think I think still the biggest challenge for me is in trying to get people to practice, <laughs> <laughs> trying to get them to do what you tell them to do. Yep. Okay, I think I spend a lot of my time trying to convince people why they need to practice this thing that I'm showing them. Okay. That has got to be my biggest challenge is to try and show them something that it might be something to do with technique and rudiments and reading, or it might be a style that learning that a lot of people go, why do we have to learn this? How does this fit in with what I'm wanting to do? So I spend a lot of time trying to contextualize why we're doing this thing. That's my biggest challenge is to try and inspire people to practice some of these sort of rudimental type things or, or technical things that, that um, are not as much fun as actually playing music. Mm. So, mm. yeah. That old chestnut. <laughs> practice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, so that, that's for me is the ongoing thing, you know, trying to, trying to yeah. inspire people to practice and to present it in a, a fun way and a relevant way to what's happening today, you know. So I, I try and keep up with the latest thing coming out. Um, you know, I've got different apps on my phone and things that have a play along things. Um, and yeah, trying to utilize technology as much as I can and that sort of thing. So, yeah. But some things are just the good old-fashioned practice pad and and um, rudiments and things like that. But, yeah, I, I've really learned a lot from teaching these little kids on Saturday morning, little six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds, um, trying to get them to sort of grasp um, some of the basics and I try and try and find ways of doing that without um, straight away putting them on the drum kit, you know? So, <laughs> I, um, yeah, I'm not quite task master of Norman Gabb, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, I, I try and, I try and sort of be firm, but, you know, and, and we have different goals and things like that, you know, to aim for. So I think that's probably the psychology of it is is probably the most challenging thing, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, what's the next 12 months got in store? Yeah, well, I know pretty much up to um, January, I've, I've got um, – I'm actually going to be going to the U.S. hopefully with, uh, with Roger Fox's band. Oh, cool. And uh, we've been invited to play at the Jazz Educators Convention in New Orleans. 
And um, so that's quite a prestigious thing where we're, we're going to play all New Zealand big band compositions. And uh, then we're going to go on to New York City and record compositions at um, the Bunker Studios uh, there um, in New York. That's, I'm sort of working with Roger, started rehearsing with him again with um, with his band and doing gig things. I've got a, a little tour that he's got coming up pretty soon throughout New Zealand with um, Alan Vizzuti, who's a, an amazing trumpet player, and Holly Hoffman, who's an amazing flute player. Um, I think Bruce Foreman, who's a, a guitarist as well from Los Angeles, is going to be on that tour. Um, so I'm, I'm doing... I'm definitely doing those things coming up. And then there's all the usual kind of Christmas type gigs that are coming up. And uh, university has got um, all of our assessments and um, uh, exams are going to be around that same period in, in October. Um, so, yeah, things are starting to book up, you know, all those mm. sorts of gigs coming in. Um, I don't really know much beyond January, you know, the end of January, and the whole thing starts starts again for teaching at university starts in March. So, okay, right, good. Yeah, so February, February, and uh, February is preparation and all that sort of thing, getting, getting right. ready for university and sort of thing, which is quite huge. Um, right. But yeah, there's. I've got lots, lots of things going on, all kinds of different little gigs and things coming up. Yeah. That's great. But the Roger Fox thing would be the, be the most major thing, yeah. Yeah, awesome. All right, Lance Phillip, thanks so much for talking to me today. Um, it's great to great to see you again and chat with you again and sort of relive some of those those memories that I have, you know, at, at Macora College and, and um, yeah, just to, you know, let you know, um, the inspiration you were for me, um, oh, yeah. it took, took, Pleasure. took me, definitely took me to another level. That's for sure. Um, yeah. um, yeah, can't thank you enough for that. So, um, oh. yeah, glad, glad everything's going well for you. And, and hopefully now that we've, you know, sort of reconnected, um, you know, we can keep in touch and, and keep yeah, chatting that'd and awesome. yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, no, you're doing a great job, Stevie. It's, um, I've been listening to the the podcast that you've done so far, and it's it's great, oh, great to man. hear these people, you know, um, and a lot of them I, I've met, you know, some of them I haven't, but it's been very great. So, thank you very much. Biden, oh man, awesome! Yeah. Yeah, glad cool. glad some glad somebody's listening. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. That's uh, good that's stuff, awesome. man. All right, Lance. Thanks, um, so, thanks so much, man. I'll, I'll yeah, I'll be in touch soon. Yeah. Okay. Hey, thanks, right, Stevie. Man. See you, Catch you, Lance. See you, man. See ya. Bye.
Thank you.